You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Dr. Vin Gupta and Dr. Peter Hotez joined the Post to discuss global vaccine production, vaccine hesitancy, and the rising cases of COVID-19. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And today we're going to be talking about coronavirus vaccines and more. And for my first guest, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Vin Gupta. He's a critical care pulmonologist and an affiliate associate professor of health metric sciences at the University of Washington. Welcome back to Post Live, Dr. Gupta. Thanks for having me, Paige. Great to be here. So let's talk about how the vaccine rollout is going. President Biden says he wants 70% of Americans vaccinated by July 4th. That's less than two months away at this point. Is that a realistic goal still at this point, given the fact that we're seeing daily vaccination rates uh, go down? You you know, Paige, uh, first of all, I think things are going extremely well because you're noticing that the key metric that we are going to be using to reopen is is hospitalization rates and not testing positivity rates or case rates necessarily. And that number is really declining. The most vulnerable among us are vaccinated, or largely so, which is why most health systems across the country are no longer under stress, meaning at least 30% of ICU beds are are taken up by COVID patients. And so we're overall doing well. I am optimistic that there's going to be uh, even though we're seeing these day, daily vaccination rates uh, s- slightly dip from from a peak that was a few months ago, I am optimistic that we're actually going to see us reach 70% plus by the middle of July. And it's purely because a lot of younger individuals, people I speak to, workforces, you name it, they just want to see their friends get it, or they just want to see more data, or they want to see the signal from the FDA that they're going to move towards full approval. So with all these things happening, it's really going to be a boon for us. I think we're going to get to 70%, even though it might take a little bit of time. I want to ask you about herd immunity, because there's been so much chatter about this. And I know I've written about herd immunity as sort of being this goal. And now there's a lot of, we're hearing increasingly from experts that maybe we're not going to get to herd immunity. But what I'm wondering about that is, you know, you mentioned hospitalizations and deaths as a key metric. At this point, we have vaccinated the most vulnerable among us, and we are seeing the death rate continue to inch downward. So my question to you is, should herd immunity be the goal? Or do you think we can sustain this place where we're at with fewer deaths, fewer hospitalizations, even if some people go unvaccinated because presumably those are the less vulnerable to those very things? Paige, I think it's the latter and it has to be the latter. You know, ultimately, Herd immunity in some ways is defined as, well, transmission of the virus has decreased because enough people are protected through vaccine-related immunity or natural immunity because they have the infection. At the end of the day, does it really matter if we see a de- decline in case transmission rates? Ideally, we would like to see that. But if we know that certain demographics, younger cohorts, deal with COVID better than older individuals, Really, for the short term, at least, it matters more what hospitalizations look like. What's the seven-day trailing average, which is of new hospitalizations from COVID? That's the metric a lot of public health departments across the country are looking at to determine stress. So I would just redefine, I, I would urge us, maybe instead of redefining what herd immunity actually is, urge us to really look at hospitalizations as the key metric here, because that's what matters. We're really not, Paige, we're not going to know 
what the true case rates are day over day because people aren't going to be wanting to test once they get the vaccine unless they're symptomatic. So behaviors will change regarding testing. And as a result, we need to look at different metrics to guide reopenings and hospitalizations is key. I want to ask you about the Johnson Johnson vaccine pause. Um, and, you know, there, there seemed to be a lot of diversity of opinion around whether this was the right choice or not. And I know we've seen some polling uh, at the Post and elsewhere that suggested the pause may have contributed at least to some extent to vaccine hesitancy. What's your own take on that? Was that the right move? Uh, and were there any negative effects stemming from that? Certainly there have been some negative effects. I don't know if they were avoidable because I ultimately think it was the right move. One, as a clinician myself, it's helpful to know that this is an exceptionally rare risk, potentially in middle-aged women and younger, but that it's one in a million. But if I had the history, I've cared for younger individuals, Paige, who have COVID, who come in with stroke-like symptoms, just because that's the way the virus acts in younger individuals, it's unpredictable. It's helpful to know that this is something to keep on our differential diagnosis if somebody comes in and meets certain criteria. Having said all that, I, I, I would be, uh, not being transparent with you right now, if I if I didn't acknowledge that there has been some spillover effect, that when I talk to young athletes, to workforces uh, that are on the front lines, whether it's um, in, in retail stores across the country or you name it in healthcare systems, they ask, well, hey, doc, can I get a blood clot from Pfizer or Moderna? So there has been spillover. There has been this weakening of confidence as a result. I think it's just going to take time. That's what uh, you had quoted me earlier, I, most people are reachable. They just need it explained. But this, this has put the onus on all of us to be better explainers, more patient explainers, to have, uh, in many ways, less in the way of mass communication events and more one-on-one <clears throat> one -on -one engagement or small group engagement so we can really get at these questions. And then lastly, I'll say, Paige, you know, if somebody says, well, I don't want to get the vaccine because I'm worried about Johnson & Johnson, luckily, we're in a place where we have options. We are fortunate here in this country, and we don't have time to waste. So I say, well, if that's the issue, well, we'll just get you a different vaccine. So I, I, I don't try to convince them if they're not reachable on J&J. &J, I just say, let's just move on. So I also think we just need to be realistic. What's your level of concern about the Americans who are vaccine hesitant now and then the folks who say they absolutely don't want the vaccine? Uh, I guess what I'm asking is, um, how much is that going to get in the way of the country moving forward? Because as we already talked about, we're already seeing deaths and hospitalizations go down, even with relatively low vaccination levels. So you can, can you kind of hash that out for us a little bit? Sure. Uh, I'm actually headed uh, soon after this on a flight to a part of the country that is still having high rates of new hospitalizations for COVID and, and, and helping out. And that's what we're probably going to see, Paige, moving into the fall, winter, when respiratory viruses like cold, dry air, we're going to see parts of the country pop back up again as hot zones for COVID. Health systems will be stressed. Whereas other parts of the country, like San Francisco, likely where I'm talking to you from Seattle, will be relatively spared at the worst of it because of higher vaccination rates. So the concern here is that we're entering a warm, humid period where viruses don't like to spread as much. We're largely speaking, deaths are coming down most parts of the country. So we're going to think we're doing better than perhaps maybe we are. And then come fall, winter, we're going to see a resurgence in certain zip codes, not in all zip codes. 
and it's going to be accompanied by health system strain in those zip codes. And that's the big concern here. I think the nightmare scenario page is, well, does something happen in India or in Brazil or outside Paris where ICUs are still full, where a variant emerges because things are amok and, and just in, in cataclysm there that then brings us to day zero here in the US, a variant that escapes all protection from the vaccine. That's the big concern that keeps a lot of us up at night, but hopefully that does not happen and hopefully we have, we see continued progress in most parts of the world. You mentioned India, and I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what's going on there. And the country seemed to actually be weathering this pretty well for much of the past year, and now we're seeing cases and deaths skyrocket. What's gone wrong recently there? Can you help us understand that a little bit better? Well, you're right. Eight weeks ago, we were not where we are right now. So one, that should tell every one of your viewers right now that things can change on a dime here with something as dangerous and as changeable as, as COVID-19. So that's number one. Things can change quickly. Number two, this shows them uh, the importance of leadership. In some ways, we're seeing the playbook of early 2020 played out now in India with Prime Minister Modi and some of his leading health officials where they're not acknowledging truth. Some of their messaging is completely way off. Uh, the Serum Institute of India leader let, fled the country um, when he should be there actually um, in country trying to lead the institute out of what was uh, a, a chaotic uh, planning process. They didn't plan for enough vaccines to remain within the country and now they're trying to play catch up. So there's been a failure of leadership, failure of messaging. Fortunately, that's petered out in terms of behaviors, large gatherings, um, indoors in some cases for weddings, unmasked, and that's why you're seeing what you're seeing on top of the fact that they just have a dangerous variant. So it's just bad luck as well. That's the unpredictability of this virus. So coupled with lack of foresight, lack of poor leadership, poor messaging, and just pandemic fatigue, in a place like India that's poor, that has uh, densely urban uh, types of uh, 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 populations concentrated into dense urban areas, it's not surprising to see this. I think a lot of us were surprised that it was spared the worst of it early in 20. I do think trying to, in addition to hoping that we can mitigate loss of life in the short term, and, and I'm, I'm heartened to see what the Biden administration has done. Paige, I'll say that I think they could do more. We have military, I'm an ICU doc in the US uh, Air Force Reserves. We have the ability to actually do more in terms of deploying resources that could save lives now. It's not part of our conceptual framework, but we should do it. I'm happy to talk more about that. I, um, pharmaceutical companies are stepping up, sending uh, monoclonals, you name it, tocilizumab. Uh, these are medications that can save lives now in intensive care units, obviously oxygen. But then this is a call to action on the part of the Indian government. Sinopharm, uh, I, I, their uh, vaccine produced by manufacturers in China was just given emergency use by the WHO. The Indian government has not even considered it for approval within country, primarily because of politics, as I understand it. That's wrong. They are putting all their uh, their bets on Sputnik, potentially getting some J&J, and on Covaxin, Covishield. They should really try to go for any option possible. They should put politics aside, Paige. Well, and, and so you mentioned this, but can you elaborate a little more? And I know we're almost out of time, but I'd like to hear some more thoughts on what you think the Biden administration should be doing towards that situation. Well, you know, they waived IP and hopefully the WTO ultimately follows suit. So that was that's a great medium term solution, intellectual property um, and allowing the uh, generic production of vaccines and therapeutics. 
I do think the Biden administration could deploy military resources. The U.S. Air Force has something called the Critical Care Air Transport Team. There's about 50 teams ready to deploy. That's 50 different ICU teams that could set up mobile triaging, mobile ICU care in hotspots across India. C5, C17s, I've flown on several of them. We could be sending liquid oxygen around the clock to India because right now we're seeing civil society trying to do what whole governments need to be doing, militaries need to be doing, which is mobilization of resources at a scale that no one individual can possibly do. So that's just moving more oxygen. That's something the U.S. military could do better. And then uh, ultimately donating more vaccines, lifting the export ban on uh, on vaccine allocation globally. That will actually be helpful in the short term. The IP waiver, that's helpful in the medium term. In the short term, let's get vaccines that are actually produced in the hands of Indians, in the hands of Brazilians. Paige, this is not just an Indian crisis right now. There's other parts of the uh, of the world like Brazil and elsewhere that are really hurting as well. So waiving the export ban on the distribution of vaccines would be helpful as well. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time for this segment, but thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gupta. It was a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Paige. Please stay with us. I'll be back with Dr. Peter Hotez after this short video. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post. And for my next guest, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a dean and professor at the Baylor College of Medicine and the co-director of Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotez, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Paige. Good to see you. So I want to start off with the, the first question I asked our last guest, which is July 4th, this, this goal of getting 70% of Americans vaccinated. Are we going to make this goal, in your opinion? I think we're going to make it and we'll make that goal in parts of the country. I mean, if you look at the vaccination trackers, what you're seeing is a, is a, is a marked disparity. And, and so the top states that are being vaccinated are up in New England. Um, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, and New York State, and California, and New Mexico, and they're hitting around 60% of the population with a single dose and 40% with two doses. And as that starts going up a little more, it'll start approaching uh, what Israel has accomplished, 50% with two doses and even 65 up to 70% with a single dose. And then the numbers will start to decline. Unfortunately, the, the rest of the country is not necessarily following suit. And when you look at the bottom 10 states, they're all deep red states. So it's Wyoming, uh, Idaho, up in the mountain area, and then in the south, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, uh, Louisiana, they're in almost half that level. Um, so really, so uh, terribly underachieving. So the concern is that we're gonna have 
uh, two nations, uh, a nation that is uh, well on its way to interrupting virus transmission and another that's still at the early stages of that. I want to ask you about the CDC guidance that we've seen and also the modeling from President Biden and his administration on mask wearing and such. And I've heard some criticism from experts who have said, you know, the CDC guidance is quite conservative on what you can do even after you've been fully vaccinated. And then also noted the fact that the president has continued to wear his mask, social distance, those sorts of things. What's your own thought on that approach? And do you think that runs the risk perhaps of maybe discouraging some people from getting the vaccines who might think, well, even if I get the vaccine, nothing changes. Yeah, the problem has been along that um, our, the, in terms of public health communication um, from the CDC and elsewhere is not really provided a, a synthesis and a roadmap to explain to the American people where we're heading. And, and it goes something like this, when we're, as, as we move deep into the summer, um, virus transmission goes way down. And, and that's important because the vaccines are high-performing vaccines, greater than 90% against symptomatic illness and even uh, documented infection and asymptomatic transmission, but not 100%. So if there's still a, a pretty high level of transmission going on, vaccinated people will still uh, get infected and, and get sick. So that's though the point is if we can reach that high level of vaccination rate by the summer, transmission goes way down then I think we can start operating uh, very much like we were pre-pandemic, uh, with meaning masks can come off and and high quality of life, with the exception that inter tra international travel will still be treacherous um, because the rest of the world is not vaccinated, with a few exceptions. That's what that's what we're that's where we're headed, and what we're seeing now are a series of incremental steps of, of getting there as transmission starts to come down. And, and the problem is the, the guidance is being explained kind of in pieces as kind of one-off factoids rather than explaining that this is a continuum. And, you know, when I explain it as a continuum like that, people say, yeah, okay, I get it. I'll, I can put up with masks now for, for, a, for a bit longer. Um, and, and I think that that could be very useful if they could put it in that context. What's your level of concern about uh, variants of the virus? I, I, it seems like so far we've seen our vaccines are effective against the variants, but there's always the concern that it, we could still see mutations. What's, do you have concerns about that or do you think they're overblown? Well, right now the dominant uh, virus is a variant of concern across the United States, the B117 variant, which came out of the United Kingdom. The good news is uh, the vaccines in our vaccine supply look pretty good against that B117 variant, almost as good or as good as the original lineages they were built for. So that's good news. Um, there will be other variants uh, coming in. And, and remember, in the places where we're failing to vaccinate in those deep red states, the worry is the B117 variant could acquire a second mutation um, uh, in the 484 position that'll make it look like a South African variant. And that's the reason why we've got to do better at reaching out to conservative groups to prevent that emergence. So, um, and, and that's another reason why we should anticipate the likelihood that we will have to contend with these additional variants like the, the, the extra mutation in the UK variant or the South African or the Brazilian variant and we should expect a booster. Uh, I can't tell you when, whether it'll be by the fall or next year, uh, but um, the booster will do it, meaning if you got two doses of the Pfizer or uh, Moderna vaccine, you should expect a third dose, and if you got the J&J, &J, a second dose, and what that booster will do, it'll elevate virus-neutralizing antibodies even further, give 
greater um, cross protection to, to variants. Uh, and, and that will be very important. And then the question that immediately follows, well, are you saying that we're going to need a booster every year? And there, the scientific communities, this community is somewhat divided. I actually don't think we will need to vaccinate every year. I think there's enough convergence around these variants that may not be necessary. Although I understand Pfizer-BioNTech now is preparing a co-formulated COVID-19 slash flu vaccine in anticipation that it might be necessary, meaning co-formulating the COVID-19 vaccine with seasonal flu. So um, that, that remains to be seen. Um, and hopefully if the booster may, may, may make it possible to be one and done. Uh, as you've noted many times, there's anti-vax speech all over social media, and you've been harassed and threatened by trolls online for trying to share news about the virus and how the vaccines work. How has the rise of social media affected the spread of anti-vax sentiment? Well, you know, the, my colleagues at the Center for Countering Digital Hate estimate around 58 million followers on these anti-vaccine group uh, sites, social media sites. So it, it's become massive. And we now know the Russian government has been piling on with this systematic program of what's being called weaponized health communication that is specifically working to discredit COVID-19 vaccines. The third element, though, is, and the one that's really been targeting me lately, is these links to political extremism on the far right and white nationalism groups. And, and that's relative, that's newer in the sense that we started seeing it around 2015 under the spanner of health freedom, medical freedom here in Texas, but it's become much more pervasive and cutting across uh, the country and even across elements of, of the Republican Party and GOP. And, and that gives me a lot of uh, pause for concern that this new third component may, may be the worst yet for us. Last week, uh, the U.S. came out support in support of waiving intellectual property rights for COVID vaccines. Uh, but you've said that these patents aren't even close to being one of the top barriers for vaccine access. Why is that and what are the top barriers? Yeah, in fact, uh, j just came out this, this morning with a piece uh, in Foreign Affairs um, with, with two colleagues. And it's it's not that patents are are not help patent waivers and and patent pools are not helpful. They are. It's just uh, my feeling is they're less impactful than they are for small molecule drugs. You know, if you know the structure of a small molecule drug, like an antiretroviral drug, there's a good chance that you can bring together chemists and formulation experts, produce it, and the only thing standing in your way is a patent. With vaccines, it's far more complex. Uh, vaccines, of course, are biologics. They take years of training to know how to scale up production and do it under a quality umbrella for quality control and quality assurance. You need the regulatory oversight. And that's why so few countries actually produce uh, their own vaccines. The, the one that's most notable in this context is India, but Brazil does it, Cuba does it. But for instance, there's no vaccines right now made on the African continent. Latin America generally underachieves, same with the Middle East and same with many parts of Asia. So. The long-term prospect is to build capacity and, and as was said in the last interview with Dr. Gupta, provide vaccines now. I mean, look at the scope of what we're talking about. You have 1.1 billion people in sub-Saharan Africa, 650 million people in Latin America, half a billion people in some of the smaller low-income countries of Asia. That's two, two, two and a half billion people. That's five, six billion doses of vaccines. And then we need it now. So in addition to what was said um, earlier about uh, donating vaccines, 
we need another big ask for the U.S. government that's as important or more important than the patent waivers, and that is help producing a bucket of vaccine. We need a ton of vaccine. So, for instance, we've uh, we're we're scaling up production of our own low-cost recombinant protein COVID-19 vaccine. Our colleagues at Biological E are scaling it up now to produce a billion doses. It's going into phase three trials. We need a lot more than a billion. Could we get help, for instance, from the U.S. government? to produce some of the other four to five billion doses that are necessary, maybe partner with one of the big multinational companies. So that's what we need. We need greater recognition that we need lots of vaccine and we need it now, and it is doable, but I'm not certain there's that focus right now. Pfizer and Moderna have probably not surprisingly argued against the patent waivers. And of course the industry says that it would undermine industry innovation. Do you buy any of that argument? Well, I think there are probably ways around it. I mean, there could be some patent waivers in order to produce mRNA vaccine for, for COVID-19. But as I said, even if you were to waive all the patents tomorrow, um, it's not as if suddenly uh, uh, lots of mRNA vaccine doses are going to appear. I mean, the technology is still immature in the sense um, that's, a, I mean, it's a great vaccine. I got my Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and I'm grateful for it. And and that they're high, they're high performance in the sense of high levels of protection, but it's still a new technology to to scale up. So um, simply waiving the patents would not be adequate. If if we really wanted to do that, what we need more than the patents is for the Pfizer BioNTech people to uh, actually help set up facilities for production in low and middle income countries. So that that would be that would be probably a more helpful. Uh, priority. It doesn't mutually exclude the patent waivers, but I, I think it's it's the thing that I worry about is people are going to sit back and and they say, okay, we checked that box on the patent waivers, okay, we're done. And the answer is no. Um, we need help from the Biden administration to scale up our vaccine, to work with uh, Moderna and Pfizer for scaling up production uh, in in low and middle income countries of the mRNA vaccines, and look at the patents. And I'm sure there are components that can be waived, but the the but. I worry that we're not keeping our eyes on the prize in terms of what really needs to be done. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you a last question about the vaccine that's being used in India, COVID Shield. And we know the vaccines developed by China have been less effective. Um, by using those less effective vaccines, how much of a delay is that going to cause in the ability of India and these other countries to really move past the pandemic? Well, India, you know, India is probably more vac has more vaccine development capacity than than most of the world. That's they're, they're the one big asterisk, maybe in Brazil as well, and Indonesia to some extent, in terms of low and middle income countries that punch above their weight in making vaccines. So, uh, Serum Institute's making AstraZeneca vaccine, Biological E's making our vaccine, and they're helping with the production of the J and J vaccine. You have uh, Bharat that's making uh, Covaxin, which is an inactivated virus vaccine, and another entity scaling up um, the um, the Sputnik V, the adenovirus vaccine. So they are they are ramping up. They do need help in terms of supply chain management and and free access to everything they need. So the question we need to ask, the most important thing is to ask the Indian manufacturers, what do you need? What what's missing in terms of your ability to scale up? and then proceed accordingly. Don't forget, there's also a domino effect because the whole game plan for vaccinating the world 
dependent on India. India was was supposed to be the biggest supply, one of the biggest suppliers to places like Africa and elsewhere, and now that's that's cut off because they're focusing on India. So there's this horrific domino effect, and that's where we need we need a more coherent foreign policy for how we're going to make lots of vaccine and make it now. Well, we are out of time, Dr. Hotez, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Paige. Appreciate it. Well, please come back and join Washington Post Live tomorrow at 2.30 p.m. My colleague Ann Hornaday will interview director and screenwriter Oliver Stone. You won't want to miss it. As always, thank you so much for watching today. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.